Heavenly Father, praise you for the fact that we can praise you. Praise you for the glories of your gospel of grace. Praise you that you've brought us together, that you've included us, that actually we stand on level ground with all who are yours before the foot of the cross. We thank you that this is a, a, a gospel of good news that is good for everybody, even those we've not met, even those whose cultures we've uh, never encountered. We can trust that you are the global God whose gospel is global. And we pray that as we think about this morning how that began to really break out of some of the molds and boundaries, we would learn lessons from how we might do that ourselves for your glory's sake. Amen. One of the uh, places that um, we're beginning to develop a work in in Langham is Romania, and um, I'm going to Romania with a couple of others in the second week of September. Um, and uh, I knew very little about uh, Romania. I went uh, as a sort of line-up visit this time last year, just before, to start meeting with some Christian leaders there and just think about how we might develop uh, a preaching movement in Romania and uh, the fruit of all these sort of preparations and discussions um, uh, will be uh, come to the fore I I next month. I uh, was flabbergasted by the sort of Christian heritage of Romania. I had no idea, just my ignorance, really. The only um, thing I had heard about it was through reading Richard Vermbrandt's books. Uh, he wrote Torture for Christ, you may remember. And um, he had spent 11 uh, out of his 14 years in imprisonment in solitary confinement uh, as a leader of the underground church in Ceausescu's regime. Um, but uh, there are half a million evangelicals in Romania. And uh, I was in this Baptist college in Bucharest, uh, where one of our leaders there is a, a faculty member. That Baptist college has been going on, uh, and it's about to celebrate its centenary. Um, and I'll never forget walking into the main lecture room. It's a relative, it's, it, you know, on the outside, it looks like a sort of average Bucharest townhouse. Um, but uh, on the top floor, there's this sort of large lecture room, and all the way around the walls were photographs of year groups, and they didn't drop a year during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They didn't drop a year, and I, I, I found myself sort of welling up as I was looking at these photos in the sort of 60s and 70s, all lined up, and you just think, what a risk just to be in that photo. Um, but for, bizarrely enough, under the Ceausescu regime, um, this college was allowed to exist and they were allowed to graduate four graduates a year. That was the sort of total. They had lots of other people coming to do training, but they were allowed to give degrees to four people. I mean, how random is that, you know? <laughs> um, and um, and uh, there, there has been extraordinary growth. And at our first conference next month, uh, the guys reckoned that we could easily get 200 at the first one. We said, well, we can't quite manage that on a... We need to have the sort of smaller work, so we're going for 100. But, I mean, how extraordinary is that? Well, um, this is uh, a picture of Bucharest. This is the uh, Palace of the People. You can just sort of make it out, uh, which uh, Ceausescu built and bankrupted the nation, basically. It's absolutely vast. It's bigger than anything you've ever seen, and it dominates the whole city. 
Um, and basically it was where the parliament was to be, where the presidential palace was to be, um, and where all the sort of bigwigs would be housed. He was quite cunning. He put all the sort of bigwigs in the hierarchy, either in that building or in the sort of blocks on the avenue lighting up so that he could keep an eye on them all. Um, but uh, it's absolutely staggering. And I read this extraordinary story in uh, one of Ravi Zacharias's books. And uh, he describes how a Christian minister from America was visiting Romania during the Cold War. And as he trudged slowly through the busy street in a beleaguered section of Bucharest, bundled up against biting cold, he was aware of the somber, grim faces of people hurriedly brushing past him. Suddenly, as if in a different world, a man walked by, his ragged, coarse coat wrapped tightly round him in the snow, a woolen scarf thrown round his neck, and a warm cap pulled tightly over his scalp, whistling a melody to his heart's content. This veteran Christian was caught completely by surprise because he recognized the melody as a Christian hymn, The Great Physician Now Is Here. Shocked to hear on a busy Romanian street, uh, he picked up his pace to match the strides with this cheerful whistler. He was aware that he might be under observation, so not wanting to put the Romanian at risk, he cautiously walked alongside of him and softly whistled the tune with him. The Romanian stopped, looked, and excitedly spouted forth a barrage of words in his own tongue, his face beaming. This American immediately knew that the words meant nothing to him, uh, and uh, this, uh, the Romanian likewise, separated as they were by the barrier of language. But as if by instinct, they simultaneously both pointed to the heavens, laid their hands on their chests, and clasped one another in an emotional embrace. Not a word was spoken. But two worlds were joined as they bade each other goodbye and went their separate ways, still whistling the same tune. Everything that separated them, culture, language, political experience, and a myriad of other differences, were set aside, for they were united by a deeper love and a transcending truth. Now, I have to say that in the, 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 the short time I've been working with Langham Partnership, I've had exactly the same experience countless times with people that I share very little with I can't speak the language and yet we've got everything in common and it's a truly wonderful thing the thing is that doesn't happen by itself there is a history to that new ground has been broken seeds have been sown by people and that involves considerable courage, creativity, and perseverance. And we find all three when the gospel first enters Europe. And I think in Luke's mind, this is a major thing. And we're going to cover a huge section um, and inevitably just pick out a few points that hopefully will stimulate you to read these chapters in a bit more depth and, and follow some of the things that are going on. But it is spine-tinglingly exciting. And of course, we here are part of the same momentum and story. So the gospel enters Europe. And we want to see how Luke tells the story. And the first thing is to see that new ground is broken, and it's clearly by God's initiative. In the progress of the book, Europe is seen to be a major development. I mean, not that they necessarily thought in terms of sort of continents and national boundaries in the way that we might, but, but certainly crossing out of the Near East is a watershed. 
And so Luke is at pains to show that God is the one getting the people there, getting the gospel there. So have Acts 16 open in front of you. And you find um, in uh, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. No idea how that happened or what was involved and how they knew it was the Spirit. We're not told. We're just told that they couldn't do it. And, um, and so they can't preach in Asia. And then in verse 7, they came to the border of Mycenae and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them in. Basically, they're being blocked at every turn, or so it seems. But then in verse 8, So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do you see, this is clearly divine initiative, blocking certain paths and opening access to a completely new path. I don't know whether Paul had thought of going to Macedonia at some point, but this was the moment in God's purposes that it was to happen. Uh, interesting, you notice the little word we popped in there. Luke has joined the group now, and he is an eyewitness of much of what happens at this stage. He pops in and out of the narrative, and we find that we did this or we did that. He's not there all the time, but that in part, I think, explains why Paul was so much of a focus of his book, because he spent time with him, and he saw how Paul worked. And God is involved in the later stages of the, the, the journey as well, as Paul breaks new ground, and sometimes Paul has to leave under cover of darkness. At other times, he stays because God has called him. And so uh, uh, we find in Corinth, when he's in Corinth in chapter 18, don't we look at it just yet, we'll get there. But in Corinth, he stays there because God tells him that there are people in the city, so he stays there. Uh, he only moves to Ephesus in 18 when he's absolutely sure that that's the right thing to do. And we find that God is the one spreading the word, spreading the fruit. So do you see that basically this major moment, Luke is at pains to show us this is God's initiative, God's the one who's making it happen. But the interesting thing is that Luke is very selective about what happens in these sort of four or five chapters. There are many places that Paul visited as he traveled around, and you can see that uh, on the maps. But um, the interesting thing is that Luke just focuses on three provinces. And um, our section includes two major journeys, the the, the second and third missionary journeys. And when you compare it with the, sea, with, with the maps, you see that actually Luke's been very selective indeed. He's just focused on the three provinces of Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia. So northern Greece, southern Greece, and uh, western Turkey. And what we have in Acts, you see yet again, is not primarily an account of the journeys themselves. It's not so much the fact of these journeys that interests Luke, it's what this signified in this big scheme of God's gospel going global. And we find as the story goes on, and you can see this uh, in the colored thing on page 11, that basically 
one sort of pattern seems to be that Paul spends longer and longer in each place. So the first few places is just a few days, three Sabbaths in Thessalonica, so that could be anything between two and four weeks. Uh, Berea is not particularly specified, but he's uh, evangelizing all over the shop. In Athens, it's not specified, but when we get to Corinth, we see that he's in Corinth for 18 months. And then when we get to Ephesus, we find, well, he ends up being there for two and a bit years. So, you know, he's not a sort of fly-by-night guy, sort of here one day and gone tomorrow. Uh, If it's possible for him to stay, if it's appropriate for him to stay, he will stay. This process of getting the gospel out requires courage, creativity, and perseverance. And we see all three in Paul. So let's, um, let's think about these three provinces and what happened in them. Now, that's, I think, the way I want to sort of try and break it down. And let's start with Macedonia, northern Greece, when he enters as a result of this vision. Well, he goes to Philippi, first of all. And uh, Philippi is described um, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 16, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So this was the sort of the province capital city. Uh, It was a huge place, important trading center, historically uh, and politically significant. Uh, The emperor Augustus, who was the first Roman emperor, who was Julius Caesar's great nephew who was adopted his son and then took his name Caesar, which is why Caesar itself became the title of the emperors, because they had to somehow prove their link to Julius Caesar. Um, Augustus won an important victory that helped him to become emperor in the first place in the Roman civil wars. And uh, citizens of Philippi were rewarded with the ultimate uh, accolade and prize, which was full Roman citizenship. And he basically, he couldn't pay a lot of his veterans after they'd fought for him, so the thing he did was to give them land and give them a living. And it was clearly, therefore, a strategic place to make for. It's not surprising that that's where Paul wanted to go. And amazingly, Paul gets to work and people start coming to faith. It's amazing. Breaking new ground, people start believing. And uh, in the most extraordinary circumstances involving... uh, you know, imprisonment, riots, miraculous earthquakes, and all kinds of other funny things. Now, there was no synagogue in uh, Philippi. Uh, A synagogue, I think, required a minimum of 10 Jewish males to be formed, and there clearly weren't enough in this city. So what would happen is that there would be a small group of uh, Jews who would meet uh, to pray, and often that meant doing it outside the city, so that's why a few would meet by the river. So you can see that Paul's first job as he would enter a city, would say, right, okay, where's the synagogue? He'd look it up on the tourist map and find the synagogue, or if there wasn't one, he'd, he'd ask around and say, where do, where do people gather? And a string of events lead to an extraordinary group of people getting converted. Now, the interesting thing is, there were no doubt others We know that there were others. We know that there was a a significant little church here. There were more than just three people, but it's interesting that we're told about these three. And what do we find? Well, we find a Jewish businesswoman, Lydia. We find a possessed slave girl. And we find a Roman veteran. Um, If you were a jailer in in the Roman Empire, it's probably because you were an ex-soldier. So sort of tough as nails, probably, and... um, bit of a mean dude, and it wasn't more than his job's worth to let any nonsense happen in his jail. 
three very, very different people. I wonder why Luke picks those three out. I want to do a little bit of speculation here. It's interesting, though, in the Talmud, which is a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings that explain and apply the law or the Torah, um, so it's just sort of accumulated wisdom over centuries of, of uh, Jewish insight into the law. A Jewish man was instructed to pray this prayer daily. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman, a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? It's not politically correct at all. Now, before we get too hasty, just hold on a second, because uh, let's put it into some sort of perspective. The, the, the point about this prayer is not about some sort of, you know, sort of sneering superiority. It's not looking down on one's nose necessarily, although no doubt many did. No, it's about gratitude for privilege. Thank you, God, for giving me privileges that all these other people don't have. Because, as you can remember, perhaps, from your understanding of the Jewish temple, there were various barriers and courts beyond which certain types of people were not allowed to go. They were somehow, in different ways, excluded from all the blessings. Strange, I know, it raises all kinds of questions, but the point is, as we were thinking uh, before about God's uh, sort of segregation of his people, is that it was a temporary measure in order to flag up the importance of living differently for God. But Luke is at pains, I think, in his gospel and in his book to show that that time has ended and that the full blessings of the gospel are now available to all. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 28? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see the point? And in Philippi, we find a Jewish businesswoman a possessed slave girl, a Gentile jailer, who are all in. Now, could it just be that of all the different people who get converted in Philippi, we're told about these, that actually in this foreign Greek pagan city, all three can become one in Christ. All are welcome. All enjoy the full blessings of the gospel of grace. Well, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to mob rule, imprisonment and flogging, and that leads to the next town in Luke's narrative. We don't hang around in Philippi very long. We move on. But uh, if there's one thing to pick out from this, notice that Paul is indiscriminate in who he evangelizes. All are welcome. He'll talk to anybody, high or low, male or female, slave or free, Gentile, Jew, anybody. He's indiscriminate in his evangelism. I find that quite challenging. But still in Macedonia, he moves on because he's forced to. It's interesting how, yet again, we see persecution is something that propels the gospel forward again and again. And we come to Thessalonica and Berea. And he travels along the Via Agnatia, which is uh, uh, this Roman road that uh, travels all the way along 
the sort of the, the, the coast and then goes all the way to the Albanian coast, to Dyrrhachium, which is the main port for getting over to, to Italy. Um, and uh, that's some of the remains there of that road. So he would have walked along that road between Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Now, in Thessalonica, there is a difference here. In chapter 17, there is a synagogue. And Paul goes to the synagogue first. So there are obviously more Jewish people in this town. Notice what he does. Verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Do you see? The Christ. He's your Christ. He's your Messiah. He's your King. And contrary to expectations, and bizarre though it may seem, this King had to die, which is very odd, isn't it? Uh, Kings rule by living, not by dying. But this one had to die and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaimed to you is the King. The Christ, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So an interesting selection here. We're persuaded. But notice what he's doing. He's reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving, he's proclaiming and persuading. To persuade that even for Gentiles, whether they be God-fearers or not, Jesus is the Christ. It's quite something. Gentiles must bow the knee to the Jewish Messiah, to the son of David. Bow the knee, as Paul would later write in his letter to the Philippians. Every knee must bow and confess that Jesus the Christ is the Lord, is Yahweh. It seems reasonable enough, doesn't it? From the scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And what does that lead to? It leads to a riot and a hasty retreat. Things aren't looking good. Things keep on happening, and yet what Paul does seems so reasonable. He's just trying to persuade people of reality, but it leads to persecution. It illustrates how countercultural the gospel really is, isn't it? And just a few weeks later, after this visit, Paul would write to this little church in his letter, First Thessalonians, just a matter of a few weeks or months later, and he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and says, look... Um, you know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure because it looked like a failure. Let's face it. He managed to stay there for three Sabbaths and then was frog-marched out. It was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. Well, we've seen that. But as you know, with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. His category, his benchmark for success was that he preached the gospel in the face of opposition. It was not a failure, but I can see why people might think it was, can't you? And what's more, it's amazing, isn't it? He was only there just for a matter of days, and yet a few weeks later there was a church to write to. <laughs> you know, 1 Thessalonians didn't just sort of go into the ether, it was written to some believers in this town. But of course, that's not the end of Paul's ministry. It's not the end of God's church. It's not the end of Paul's ministry. Because what does he do next? Well, persecution pushes him on again to Berea. I mean, one of the things I think that really impresses me about Paul, and it shows me up 
I find, is that he keeps getting back on the horse. It's one thing to be stoned for uh, preaching. It's a sort of another thing to go to another town and to find that you're stoned for preaching. It's another thing to go to a third town and risk being stoned for preaching and yet to keep preaching. It's just absolutely flabbergasted. You get the idea. <laughs> to have caused riots in two different cities and then to go on to another city and keep doing the same thing, I just find staggering. Courage, creativity, perseverance. Um, and so off he goes to Berea, just along the coast. Ooh, I forgot to put that up so you can see the Thessalonians verse. There you are. So you know that I wasn't making it up. But in Berea, he finds something that I think is true of Paul himself. Chapter 17, verse 11. They're eagerly examining the scriptures to see what is being said is true. I guess that was a process that Paul himself had to go through as he really studied and thought and prayed and grappled with things. And, and basically, these guys aren't going to take anyone's word for, uh, you know, the last word for an answer. They want to see it in the scriptures. And they're persuaded by that because it's there. What this demonstrates, amongst other things, is a confidence in scripture as being the place where we can be sure to hear what God says. But again... Paul has to make a hasty retreat. Unfortunately, some geezers from Thessalonica come down the road. Uh, they've heard that that's where Paul has gone, and they want to stir up trouble. They can't bear the thought of him being next door, so they come to Berea, and 13 to 15, he gets propelled out again. Persecution propels the church onwards. And that brings him to Achaia, which was the sort of world-famous part of Greece, really. The two most famous Greek cities in the ancient world were Athens and Corinth. And I guess he spent time in various other places in, the, in this province, but these were the two cities Luke tells us about in Achaia. Uh, they're cities of extremes. Athens was, uh, had the reputation for being the intellectual and cultural pinnacle, not just of Greece, but the whole Roman Empire. If you were an educated Roman in Rome, you aspired to being Greek. And if you were really educated, you spoke Greek. Even in Rome, you would have known all the sort of Greek classics. Um, and so if you were an Athenian, you were right at the top, even though you were sort of subject to this big empire that you were part of. If you were Athenian, you were, you were you were pretty pleased with yourself. I mean, think of all the incredible names that have come out of Athens. You know, Demosthenes or uh, Sophocles or Socrates or Plato or Phidias, the artist. All these different people. Basically, Athens was the world cultural center, which made it a center of snobbery and superiority. And Corinth, well, Corinth is this double port city. You see the sort of sticky out bit. Uh, the isthmus that holds the main sort of southern body of Greece to the mainland. And it's a very thin strip of land, and Corinth is in the middle of that isthmus and at the narrowest say, place. So basically, it was a double port. It was a port on both sides. And I don't know whether you have any experience of port cities, but they're usually pretty grisly places and lots of lowlifes and dodgy people. Well, this is port city squared. It was a center for immorality, and you probably are aware that there was a special Greek word to Corinthianize 
which was basically to live a life of scandal and loose living. You know, it's quite bad to have, you know, sort of a whole lifestyle named after a city and for it to be this low. What is interesting is that Paul is not afraid of either place. I guess each of us would perhaps feel more comfortable in one or another, the snob or the low life. Paul can go to either, and he's confident to take the gospel to either. Confident to see that the gospel can change both. He had to work hard, of course, to get beyond what I sometimes sort of call the worldview static. You know how you, if you're listening to a radio in the old days, you know, sort of shortwave or whatever before FM came along, and you're twiddling the knob trying to get, uh, get it quite sort of clear so you can p- pick out the sort of the words and stuff. Uh, one of the greatest moments of our time in Uganda was when the World Service came on FM about six months after we got there, and it was just heaven. Um, uh, but before that, you know, you had to sort of twiddle the dial to try and get it on shortwave, and, you know, you could hear about every third word. And basically, for the guy sitting in Bush House, uh, he or she was sort of being, you know, speaking with crystal clarity there in his little room in Bush House, and, and it was going out all over the world. Uh, but there was me in my car or uh, in my study trying to sort of twiddle the knob to try and get um, the world service, and I could hardly hear anything. So it was clear one end, but my end, there was tons of static and noise going on that meant I couldn't hear it. When FM came along, it was just fantastic. I could drive along uh, in the car, and it could be like, you know, John Humphreys was in the car with me, which was obviously a delight. Um, extraordinary. But I think worldviews are a bit like that. Um, basically, we say, we might think we're saying one thing and think we're being perfectly clear and reasonable, but we're here to say something completely different. There's a lot of static in the way that muddles up the message. So we might say, for instance, to take something ultra-topical um, and controversial, God loves people with homosexual orientation. And we're heard to say, God hates them. You hate them. Because there's so much static in between that actually completely distorts what we're saying. Yes, there are a lot of things that Christians have to repent of in terms of how we love people who battle with this. A lot of things. We don't get it right. We mustn't be smug or complacent about it. But let's face it, when we do try to ever talk about this, the static is just overwhelming, and we're assumed to be homophobic and hateful. We want to say God loves, and we're seen to say God hates. And it's our job to do what we can to remove the static. They're not going to bother. Why should they? And any time we are in a cross-cultural situation, we face this static. Every time. And the difficult thing, I think, for many people who've lived all their lives in this country is that they assume we don't need to do that worldview work. We assume, oh, well, I'm British. I've lived here all my life. I know how to talk to British people. Well, funnily enough, you probably don't, which is why people react in certain ways they do. Now, of course, in the end, the gospel itself will be the stumbling block. But there are plenty of things that we put up in in advance of that that actually we need to do work to remove. Now, I think what we see is that Paul worked hard to cross the worldview boundaries. And this is where the whole creativity thing comes in. But um, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, some of you will know of Ram Gadumal, who was a, a candidate for London mayor a few years back. And uh, he describes his first experience of a church coming into 
uh, London. It's, it's the other way around. Here's the unusual situation where a pagan comes into a church to find out what's going on. But I think he describes it so well to illustrate the sort of the static and the weirdnesses of it all that it just helps us to flag up how many things we cannot take for granted. This is what he wrote. I recall my first visit to a church in England, my first church ever, in fact, in my life. It was St. Paul's Onslow Square. I went to the evening service so that none of my friends or relations would see me going. The first thing I looked for was walk, when I walked in was the shoe box. I wanted to take my shoes off. This is holy ground. You're asking me to come in with my dirty, filthy feet and go into the presence of God? No shoe box? That's not right. This is not holy, I thought. I must take my shoes off. But there was no place for me to take my shoes off. So I went to sit on the floor in the proper position of respect. And the usher said, sit on that wooden bench. Then the organ blasted out, and I thought, who's died? Because for me, organ music was just for funerals, in my mind. It was an alien experience. There's a whole lot of unlearning to be done in asking how we can communicate the message of Jesus with simplicity in a way that takes these barriers away. In the end, I found I've been able to use my skills in business to help start some of these translations. We produce a series of books and CDs that connect with South Asian experience. Fortunately, I was able to pay for publication because in the early days, not many Christian publishers were willing to take on a book that talked about Jesus as the Bodhisattva who fulfilled his dharma to, pray, to pay for my karma to negate samsara and achieve nirvana. <laughs> He was very unusual. He actually set foot and took the initiative in a Christian building. Very few people will. We need to go out, which is what Paul did in Achaia. And Athens, this wonderful, awesome city, is a city that he described as a city of ignorance. Can you imagine going to Athens and saying you're ignorant? Of all places in the world to say, you morons. He gives a sermon to total pagans. This is the first time we really get a sense of, of this with someone who has no contact with Christian things. And, of course, it's a summary. It's just the bullet points. I'm sure he went on for much longer than just the five minutes it takes to read it out. And um, I'm sure he included lots of things about Jesus, his life, his mission, his ministry, his teaching, some of the Old Testament background, all these things. But Luke picks out the unique features and the interesting thing is that Paul was not the average tourist in awe of the wonderful architecture and sophistication. Instead, he sees the problems as epitomized, as he calls it, by their temple to an unknown god. It's unknown. They're hedging their bets with this temple in case there's some gods they've missed out. He quotes Greek poetry and engages with Hellenistic worldviews to make his point. He's clearly done his homework. And yet his point is this, there is one true creator of the cosmos, and in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. There is no need for temples. God doesn't live in them. Do you remember that's a bit similar to Stephen's speech that we saw in Acts 7? And there's no need for a priesthood. Uh, in uh, 
in verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You know, God wouldn't collapse if the priesthood collapsed. He's still God. God doesn't live in buildings. He doesn't need priests. So repent of your ignorance, he says in verse 30. That's something to say to a culture that's renowned for its philosophy. The city of Socrates and Plato is ignorant. So repent. Now, the urgency behind this message comes from the fact that Jesus has died and risen again and is therefore, and the resurrection proves this, the judge of the world. He has authority. Repent. This is an urgent matter. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. Sure, okay, we can understand why you didn't know about this before, but now I've told you. I've told you about Jesus, so, so now do something about that. It's interesting, isn't it? Unlike all the other sort of cities in Macedonia we've looked at, the response to Paul is typically Athenian. There isn't a riot this time. <laughs> it's very sophisticated. No riots, just disdain. <laughs> What's this man babbling on about? But there are a handful, a little handful of converts, Dionysius, Demaris, one or two others. So even there, even after this rather punchy, full-on, in-the-face message of repent, one or two people do. Remarkable. I think what I see here is a boldness to be prepared to challenge the culture. That actually, just because something is cultural, doesn't make it right. Doesn't necessarily make it wrong, either. And, you know, Paul is not afraid to quote from cultural examples of things where people touch on truth. But um, just because it's the way it is, doesn't make it the way that God wants it. But after the sort of cultural snobbery and disdain of Athens, he moves down the coast to um, Corinth. And um, I mentioned before that Claudius uh, was the Roman emperor at this time. And during his reign, there was anti-Semitic persecution. Um, and uh, uh, Jews were thrown out of Rome. And you can see that uh, mentioned. This is, you know, it's just one of those little historical details that help us to sort of lock this into a time frame. So we see in verses 1 and 2, uh, in verse 2, there's Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who had come from Italy um, as a result of this anti-Semitic persecution. And so that means that we know that this happened sometime during the 40s A.D., now, notice Paul's strategy again. Jews first, in verse 4, he reasons in the Sabbath. And then he testifies, verse 5, what? Well, that Jesus is the Christ, so same message. But when things blow up, uh, look at this in verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door <laughs> to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and baptized. So the synagogue leader, as well as one or two others, moved next door with Paul and uh, these new believers. So can you imagine how provocative that was? Okay, well, uh, I get this sort of rough ride in, um, uh, you know, all souls, and, uh, you know, uh, 
get thrown out of All Souls, let's move into the Langham Hotel. Now, things are clearly tough. One of the toughest places, no doubt, in the ancient world to minister. And actually, it takes a vision from God to keep Paul there. I guess in his darker moments, he was aching to leave. I've sometimes described how when we were in Uganda, the, there were three British Airways flights. Um, it was the only direct flight from Entebbe to London. There were three British Airways flights a week. And the flight path used to go straight over our house. And, you know, certainly in the earlier months, I, I vividly remember just looking out, you know, from our house, looking, and I could see the BA flight going back to London. And there would be days when I just ached to be on that plane. And I guess Paul felt the same. But it took a vision from God to persuade him to stay. Look at verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. I guess every cell in his body was saying, shut up, stop doing this, it's not worth the trouble. Look what trouble it gets you into. I can't take any more of this. And God has to say, don't be afraid, because he was. Keep on speaking, because he wanted to stop. Don't be silent, because he wanted to be silent. Why? Because I'm with you. And no one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. In other words, I've got my plans. I know what I'm doing. There are people here, maybe in six months' time, who will hear what you say and come to know me. Keep at it, Paul. He persevered, of course, but he struggled. Who didn't? He was a normal guy. He wasn't a super saint. Uh, Notice... Interestingly, the accusation against him in verse 13. Uh, The accusation against him, this man, the people charges, persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Again, does that ring bells with Stephen? Basically, the gospel goes against the way we do things. Well, what do we see in Paul here? A perseverance to serve the church. Finally, we come to the third province, to the province of Asia. And the main uh, city was Ephesus. Um, This is a bit of complete trivia, but um, bizarrely enough, uh, in a Muslim country like Turkey, um, there there is one brewery. Uh, So there's one brand of beer that you can get anywhere in um, Turkey, and it's FS beer, uh, Ephesian beer. So I always sort of have a wry smile when I see that. You know, that's what Ephesus has become. It's the place where they brew beer for Turkey. But um, here we are in Acts 18 to, uh, to 20. This is a long period. Uh, during this period, you know, he starts on his third mission. He comes back, starts on his third missionary journey and travels through Turkey, Galatia, and Phrygia. Luke doesn't tell us about any of these things. So, you know, these are journeys of months, certainly weeks. But we're not told about those. The focus is just on Ephesus. And man, there are some weird things going on in Ephesus. Uh, and I, you know, I've just sort of tried to describe it as various mysteries. The first is the mystery of the missing baptisms. It seems to be, and this raises some of the things we were thinking about in the seminar last night, it seems to be that what happened with the Samaritans with this strange double conversion happens again. There seems to be this need for a double conversion, a blessing of the Spirit. But actually, look carefully, it's not quite what it seems. Apollos is a key player. We've heard about him in the end of chapter 18. He's converted 
He's faithful, but he's not yet baptized into Jesus. He's clearly going to become a trusted guy because, of course, he was going to be one of the key people that Paul would use over in Corinth. And he would baptize some people, as Paul writes in his first letter, doesn't he, you know? Um, and he helps out um, Aquila and Priscilla in their work. Uh, you know, and so do you remember some of the divisions in Corinth that Paul has to deal with in his letter revolve around which sort of guru people follow? Well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and I follow Christ. So he was obviously going to be someone who was a key player, but at this stage, uh, he doesn't seem to have the whole whack. And then you have these 12 disciples who know even less about the gospel. And, um, and so they need, um, you know, they didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And so they, uh, in uh, chapter 19, verse uh, 3, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Now, basically, what I think we have here is a gospel time warp. This situation can never happen again because you cannot have people anymore who've just heard of John but not Jesus. Probably what happened is you've got a group of people, perhaps who were traveling around the promised land, traveling around uh, uh, Judea, and they bumped into um, John and thought, hang on, this is quite good. We need to do something about this. Let's repent. And they have this baptism, and then they move on before Jesus gets uh, going. So this is a cultural anomaly, a historical anomaly. This could never happen again because very soon after John has got on with his work, Jesus appears and basically uh, things become clearer. Now, of course, there were debates. You can remember back in the gospel, some people from, who followed John came to Jesus and said, look, are you the one? Do you remember? But, but the point is that there was this big connection. And once Jesus' ministry gets sort of, you know, gets really going, this sort of situation can never happen again. But what does Paul do? Well, he finds out about what's happened. And he finds out that they've, they've you know, their heart's in the right place. They want to do the right thing. They want to follow God and to follow his, his great new purposes in this new covenant. They've heard Paul, um, John. They get baptized. And uh, now um, Paul proclaims the Christ. That's what you do in that situation. Now, I suppose it's possible that there are some people who could have followed John and not Jesus yet. I suppose. I can't quite imagine how. But this is what you do in that situation. You tell them about Jesus. Because that's what John was doing, as Paul says. He was preparing for Jesus, the one who were baptized in the Spirit. And you have another sort of mini Pentecost. Verse 6, Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. Paul carries on in chapter 19 with the same strategy as Corinth. He spends the first three months in a synagogue. And then, inevitably, that leads to opposition. And then he goes to the hall of Tyrannos. He sort of rents this lecture room and um, spends two years preaching, teaching, pastoring, discipling, and so on. What you have here is sort of gospel implications fleshed out. If there are things that are missing in people's understanding of Jesus, then Paul fills, uh, plugs in the gaps. But um, all the time he is trying to bed and root people in the gospel. And then you have the second mystery, which I call the mystery of the knowledgeable demon. And basically... 
the situation is here, well, we know that demonic activity was rife in Ephesus. Uh, the Temple of Diana, which was this huge and impressive wonder of the ancient world, um, and people used to worship uh, the goddess Diana there, and um, there was a lot of occulty stuff going on. And these uh, seven sons of Siva, these uh, Jews, with perhaps the best of motives, but rather a naive approach, think that actually it's just a matter of channeling the power that Paul clearly has. Just as we saw back in Samaria with uh, um, Simon the sorcerer, thinking, hey, Philip's got this power, I would like some of that too. But the demon is too strong, and they say, look, I've heard of Jesus, I've heard of Paul, I don't know who you are and the demon overwhelms them. It just shows that actually you don't mess with these sorts of things, you don't play around. It's not about channeling power or anything like that. But the key thing is that God is sovereignly at work, actually without Paul being present in this uh, strange incident. Paul isn't there, but it leads to profound, uh, a profound impact on gospel progress. So verses 17 to 20, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. doesn't necessarily mean that people bowed the knee and accepted it, but it had its impact, and people heard about Jesus. And yet many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord, see it again, spread widely and grew in power. I've said, you know, slightly flippantly, call this the benefits of fear. I don't want to be glib about that, but, but fear does actually have positive results. If it turns you away from things that are evil to things that are good. If I shout, BOMB! No doubt there would be a few hearts racing and you would want to get up and leave. You would probably be quite scared. In fact, I hope you would be, because if you weren't, you probably wouldn't do much about it. People talk about how we mustn't scare people into the kingdom. <laughs> well, I sort of know what they mean, but, but the reality is that the alternative is too horrific even to contemplate. It's worse than a bomb. If it's true, surely... <laughs> We want people to be scared of that, so they run to the one who can save them. Well, fear certainly had a positive impact here, as people realized that there was one greater, there was one Lord, Jesus, and that therefore their old dabbling in occulty stuff should be put away and burnt up. Um, I think I've got time just to tell you a little story. Uh, one of my students in Uganda was a lovely guy called Robert. I'm still in touch with him. He's a fabulous guy. Um, and uh, uh, highly intelligent and a real man of real integrity. And he um, was from this little village just outside Kampala, and he and his, his family lived there, and he would sort of trek in um, every day to the college, sort of good hour and a half on public transport. It's not easy done. Um, but uh, Robert you know, just had this heart for this little village. It felt very sort of bush, really. It was on the outskirts of Kampala. You could be in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, basically, he started trying to plant a little church in this village. It was basically around a little Bible study he was running in his house. And there was a witch doctor in the village 
who um, uh, really didn't like what Robert was doing because uh, she felt that she held sway over this little village. This was her patch. And um, what you find in a lot of places around the world is that the temptation is to try and fight power with power. And you get into, and this is a bit of a caricature, but you get into a sort of battle of saying, my God's stronger than your God, you know, my dad's bigger than your dad type thing. And sometimes, you know, God will bring people to himself by showing that actually his power overwhelms them. We saw that way back in Exodus with Pharaoh and his magicians not being up to Moses. Remember that? But he doesn't always work like that. And in fact, uh, Robert didn't have any sort of, you know, ability to sort of do extraordinary things. And, and this witch doctor cast spells and weird things did happen. And there was no doubt there was something in this. And, um, but she challenged him for uh, a sort of public, well, debate or, I don't know, a sort of head-to-head -head in front of the whole village. And she came with all her rigmarole and, and um, you know, sort of chicken heads and all kinds of gruesome things. It's no laughing matter. And he came with his Bible. <laughs> He's a very tall man. He's about sort of 6'6". Six, six. And he just stood there. And he said, look, um, I, I, I can't offer these sort of things. I can't do the sorts of things uh, you can do. But I do believe and trust in a God who is Lord of all of it. And he commands you to stop doing this. And the authority by which I speak is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again from the dead and commands you to repent. I don't have power. In fact, I bring weakness. I bring the weakness of the cross, he said. And people laughed at him. How absurd. A dead God is pathetic. And it was uncanny because we were actually studying Paul's letters that term and we were dealing with Corinthians and it was Corinthians. Some people look for powers and miracles and some people look for wisdom and we bring stupidity and weakness. The weakness and stupidity of Christ crucified. But you know what? A handful of people believed and joined that little Bible study. Paul then goes on his travels. He comes back via Miletus and he calls some of the Ephesians to come and join him for a final farewell. And in Acts 20, and do read this sort of farewell speech. We've got to finish now, but do read that. And just, it's very emotional, you know. This sort of, you know, everyone's crying all over the place. And, um, you know, they know that they're probably not going to see each other again in this life. Um, but there's a profound love and um, care for one another. Everybody's crying and everybody's all over the shop. Um, but uh, Paul says a few things that actually prepare them for the future. And he tells them about what they know of him. You know this about me, about my ministry and, and, and what I taught and the content of the gospel. And I taught you the whole counsel of God and I taught you everything that you needed. And I worked hard to be generous and to do things that didn't put you out. But what I know is this, that suffering awaits. Look at verse 22. Now I'm compelled by the Spirit and I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. You want a word from the Lord? This is what Paul got every time he visited somewhere. 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Again, this sort of flags up his conversion, doesn't it? It was part of his DNA, his spiritual DNA, what happened on the Damascus Road. You will take my gospel to the Gentiles and their kings and to the Jews, and I'll show you how much you will suffer for me. But you will be my witness, which is what the apostles were, isn't it? Way back in Acts 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses, my witnesses. In other words, witnesses of the Lord Jesus to Judea, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so be faithful, because you see, what I know is that even though we'll never see each other again, probably, in this life, and you know that what I've done and said, and I've done all that I can and and, uh, wanted to, but you know that there will be false teachers who will come, wolves in sheep's clothing, verses 27 to 32, be faithful, defend against them, and don't be one. Be faithful to the gospel, be guardians for the next generation. Paul's not coming back to Ephesus, so what happens after he's gone? Well, you don't need an apostle, but just be faithful to his teaching. That is the true apostolic succession. You will, many of you will remember Paul Williams. Um, there are about 10 Paul Williamses in the evangelical world. It's very confusing, including the new Bishop of Kensington, who's a great guy called Paul Williams. But this is the Paul Williams who is at All Souls and who's now in Sheffield. I was very struck when he told me this, that this is his daily prayer for Christchurch Fullwood, the church where uh, uh, he is now the vicar. This is what he prays for Fullwood every day. Lord, guard us from scandal, protect us from false teaching, preserve us from disunity. It'd be good to pray those for all souls every day, because we can't take any of those things for granted, can we? Guard us from scandal, Protect us from false teaching. Preserve us from disunity. In fact, will we pledge to pray that for all souls every day? It's a great way to pray for the church. Scandal, false teaching, and disunity. Three ways to kill a church dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the way he traveled around the ancient world with great courage and perseverance and a willingness to try and engage with whatever he found. We pray that we might even just do the half of that and do it with courage and conviction. In Jesus' name, amen.